hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America on Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We have a great show for you this week. Uh, the first part is going to be with Dr. Jack Lyons-Weiler, who is the founder of the Institute for Pure Applied Knowledge, and he's going to review what that institution is, how it offers courses to the public to get better informed about so many of the issues that we faced in the last few years, epidemiology, genetics, infectious diseases, uh, and so much more. And then the second half is going to be the audio portion of an interview that I had with Lara Trump, who is the daughter-in-law of former President Donald J. Trump. And you'll get a sense of how I navigated that interview as an independent, uh, politically-oriented person in how I think even uh, the Trump camp has come around to what's happened through the pandemic, that they were lied to. Now they have to come to a reckoning there. So let's move on with the program. Uh, really an iconic figure in uh, now, I think, uh, the new way of teaching science and understanding uh, such a broad application of scientific principles, everything from basic science to uh, clinical investigation, epidemiology, public health and policy, Dr. Jack Lyons-Weiler. Jack, welcome to the program. And why don't you introduce yourself so our audience can get reacquainted with your background and we'll get into the topic. Sure, I'm an evolutionary biologist by training, but when I saw the size of the data sets that were coming from whole genome expression arrays and mass spec proteomics, I knew guys like you didn't have time to really master the data analysis. So I took my skills in computer science and statistics and biology and put them together in this field called bioinformatics. I was uh, in the Department of Pathology at the University of Pittsburgh for a good number of years. And I worked with people in the cancer center and we were very successful in you know, making sure that the science that everyone was doing was uh, very objective. Uh, and that conclusions were founded on uh, the data <laughs> as it were. And uh, since then, you know, about 2014, uh, created um, an independent research institute. You may have heard of it. It's called IPAC, uh, the Institute for Beer and Applied Knowledge. Uh, we have uh, hosted people like Jessica Rose and helped them get uh, get get going in in research in the areas that we're both concerned in. And um, you know, my 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 passion is objectivity in science. I have two sons who I raised with the promise that this world. In this world, science was a good way of knowing things. And I want to make sure that that's true in the future. And so, you know, we did some research studies on aluminum and vaccines, uh, published those. We have three of those. We have a fourth one coming. And then we also did um, the Vaxed on Vax study using Dr. Paul Thomas's data with him and co-published with him. We'll talk a little bit about what's going on with that now in a minute. But uh, lately, uh, you know, we created this journal uh, where I'm editor-in-chief. Uh, the journal is um, uh, open access, and we publish papers that are specifically focused on studying the mismatch between science and medical practice or science and public health policy, I guess. And um, that journal has published some hard-hitting 
objective analysis and studies and papers uh, that really, I think, help move the narrative forward and move the investigation about the narrative forward, I should say, um, uh, to say uh, what's really happening with the COVID-19 itself and with, uh, you know, the virus and with, uh, with vaccines. Um, and Jack, the title of that journal is so our, our viewers can find it. It's, the title is a great title. It's Science, Public Health Policy and the Law. So, so it's everything. It's this broad. Yeah, it's widely broad intentionally because, you know, we have if we're going to use science to make sure that the regulators, as I've come to call them, do their job right, <laughs> then we have to not why, why, why minimize ourselves to a narrow scope of something about vaccines or something that might not be the most important problem in the future. Right. Uh, since the scientists that uh, have figured out that they can make billions of dollars fooling the public about their science in ways that negatively impact public health. And it's not just vaccines, of course, it's, it's all the, the, the garbage in our food and the toxins that they say are not toxic, like glyphosate and so on. It's all these issues that we, we have a home journal that you know I'm very proud and extremely excited to, to let people know here. Most people don't know this, but you were creating a journal about medical research and you and your team are coming to join us in our journal and you're gonna be the clinical uh, section editor in chief. And I'm just so proud, I can't tell you, it's such an honor really, Peter, to have you um, as part of this initiative. And um, yeah, so <laughs> that's who I am and people kind of know me pretty well, but I created this, this university, this online university to teach the public the knowing public, the, the willing public, the curious public at, at a college level or higher courses that um, will allow, empower them to be able to stand up to lies and um, propaganda. And it's been a great success. It's yeah. true. It's true. You know, I was just on Dell Big Tree, the higher wire with Dr. Gert Vandenbosch. And he let me know he's teaching one of the courses. So it sounds like you've got some Terrific courses. Of course, people can take them online. They can take them anywhere around the world and I think really have something uh, substantial to show for it when they're done. So uh, can you give us just a, a little bit more context about uh, IPEC EDU? Uh, it's, it's been around now nearly 10 years, right? It's been, it's been around for two years. The IPEC's been around for 10 doing research, but we started IPEC EDU in 2020. Oh, so I guess, okay. I guess we're three years, three, two and a half years old. And we've had over 1,200 students come through okay. courses there. Good. So, you know, I decided if, going to, if people are curious about the virus or immunology or something like that, to really understand the fundamentals of the applications of biologic science, they have to learn biology. So I, I went, I, I got out my old bio books and I taught bio one and bio two, believe it or not, at college level, majors level. I didn't, I'm, I'm not holding back here. And so then we had 140 seven students take immunology last year oh you did that's fantastic it's remarkable what they learned and so now i can right now i'm in the middle i'm halfway through a course on autoimmunity and the students really understand the content it's really fun to have a community of people who are into objective science and they don't have an agenda other than to learn and empower themselves who can understand you know the relationships between dendritic cells and b cells and t cells and you know, all the rest of the complex processes and things that can go wrong, which of course then brings in um, the, 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 the diseases that we need good medical doctors like yourself for. So about half of our courses are health focused. It's amazing. And yeah, 
Dr. Vandenbosch is coming over to teach about immunology in the context of what happens to immunology into our immune systems during a pandemic and epidemic as we try to approach the problem of immunity. Um, he's uh, he's really going to his right now is number one in in the number of people who are, are registered for the fall. And courses start in September, but we have a huge number of really interesting and important courses. So Dr. Mark McDonald is coming back to teach for a second time, of course, how not to be fooled. Of course, he's a psychiatrist. Wow. Uh, yeah, who uh, you know um, brings forward the message of how to look at the the messaging and the propaganda through the eyes of a psychologist who's had the veil lifted. Um, Brad Miller, who is a 101st Airborne commander serving in the U.S. Army, who had to leave the Army because he refused to take the vaccine, refused to order the people serving under him to take the vaccine. He's teaching a course, Literature as Resistance. So we all talk about, you know, uh, we talk about 1984 Orwell, and we talk about Aldous Huxley, and we, and we talk about books like that. But we really haven't dusted them off right, lately, right? And so he's going to take people through some key features of that literature just in a, a reading discussion type format. His is a popular course. Uh, I'm doing immunology again, but and I also have environmental toxicology on my plate. Um, I taught that to, I think it was 68 students. Mm -hmm. um, and But I'm really going back to my roots in the fall and I'm teaching evolutionary biology. Oh, you know, that's gonna be given. Really important that we develop in our community a foundational understanding of the principles of evolution so that when the story goes, you know, for instance, there's 30 changes in the spike protein uh, from the last time they looked at it. Now this, uh, what is it, a BA386 or something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, my brother-in-law just, just sent that to me. Hey, there's 30 changes. And my response was, it's BA286, 30 changes in the spike protein. And I saw the report. I said, I'm not surprised. It is targeted by the vaccine and thereby by the immune system in the vaccinated. Right. It, there's this there's this narrow immunity we keep talking about. That's a very severe selective pressure. So mm. What if I taught you exactly what evolutionary biologists know about natural selection and drift and the effect of population size and mutation rate and everything that we think that we know about molecular evolution and how it affects organisms and bacteria and viruses? This is an important course for people who really want to get under the hood of how to understand it when they say, hey, you know, we, well, now we need this respiratory syncytial virus. Well, you know what? It's quantitative. Studying evolution is quantitative. You will develop your quantitative skills. You'll be able to look at it and say, hey, wait a minute. You know, it's an epidemiologic question, but I can understand it from an evolutionary standpoint. No one goes to the hospital for RSV and dies. No one. It's so difficult to find anybody of any age group uh, to, to get any serious mortality that's worth the potential risk, especially if they roll out new technologies like they're doing. Mm -hmm. and, and also at a bigger picture, Peter, to take something like the mRNA technology, which we know is mutagenic, and not immediately see that that is a cancer risk, simply because it's mutagenic. There's insertional mutagenesis, therefore, it's going to cause genomic instability. Genomic instability, one of the hallmarks of cancer. I have an entire course. It's about, gosh, 28 hour-long lectures on the biology of cancer. So I've been a busy boy. Well, it'd be great to have some of these courses directly uh, apply. Uh, so, for example, you know, it is uh, interesting to look at evolutionary pressures as they relate to COVID-19 vaccination. That can be, you know, one of 
many examples, uh, mutagenesis, uh, the same thing, are actually multi-hit hypothesis for oncogenesis. That's actually very, very interesting that, because- that, 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 That's a big part of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I did, Peters, I went to Hannah Hannon Weinberg and I had the students read Hannah Hannon Weinberg, The Hallmarks of Cancer. And we read every paper up until the present time that addressed Hannah Hannon Weinberg in a conceptual framework. Now, they, they asked the question, if you have a, a healthy cell, a healthy organ, what characteristics do the tissues have to acquire, the cells have to acquire to become frank cancer? And then after that, we applied those principles to all the different cancer types. I actually owe those students a lecture on brain cancer. I didn't do that. The skin cancer and brain cancer are the most complex. So, uh, but you know who's really good about thinking in terms of evolutionary biology with respect to the virus and viruses? Uh, it's Dr. Andrew Wakefield. He really blew my mind. He sent me a manuscript about uh, evolution in measles and the effect that it has in the population both, right? So we have this co-evolution between measles virus going on with humans because we're both evolving on the same planet. They make their living on us and we fight them off. And so is it an arms race or are we brokering some kind of a deal here? And, <laughs> you know, and, and it's really interesting because, you know, he makes the point that before the vaccine, the, the only people that were at risk of having clinical measles were the people who were not immune, which would be people that weren't receiving passive immunity from their moms from breast milk. Uh, and kids that were three and four years old. Um, and, and, and as they aged out, they aged out into the immune because they, they, they got and survived measles. And so now that the vaccine has come in, there's a shift in the population, in our population, where you have the very young that are at high risk, and then you have the people that never had any immunity whatsoever to measles other than from the vaccine, and because the virus is evolving, both in the wild and in the lab, remember we grow the virus in the lab from mm. an isolate from long ago, then we have this antigenic shifting and antigenic drifting. So the, vi the vaccine becomes less, um, the, the, the immunity of those people wanes just like it did with COVID. And the interesting thing about the evolution of immunity in COVID was it's the same thing that's happened with pertussis, same thing that happened with measles, same thing that's happened with mumps, where we start seeing entire vaccinated up-to-date populations all breaking out with this you know we had to lock down a ship at sea for something like eight months you know uh, the u.s navy ship and so because of the shift in the the measles who is targeting now now we have older people who are going to be at risk of of clinical measles that can be dangerous for them and then we have the the younger people young, young kids because their moms don't have any passive immunity to pass on because of their, their, their antibodies don't work anymore. Mm. And so, you know, understanding the complexities of biology and evolution, we start with the basics in biology and we can go anywhere from there, whatever your interest is. Well, that's fantastic. Now, Jack, does the, uh, does IPEC offer some type of degree uh, pathway or uh, if, if someone wanted to enroll, take several courses uh, in the end, do they have something, um, tangible they can show others? You know, it's really fascinating that you asked that because I, I did a poll, of course, after we had a few hundred people taking it. And uh, uh, you know, the, the poll came back and there was only like 1% of people that were concerned in any way over accreditation or mm -hmm. um, getting any kind of degree. There's a niche of lifelong learners who haven't attended a college course ever where they went to college for something else. In my first course in immunology, I had two it was just by accident. They didn't know, didn't know each other. I had two people, both of who had PhDs in engineering, 
<laughs> and they came to IPEC EDU to learn some biology. So these are lifelong learners, which is a joy for me, right? The, and mm. joy for the instructors. We give, we give a lecture, it's a live lecture, uh, or it's taped from the year before if it's still good and timely. And then at the end of that period, we open it up for a, a kind of a classroom discussion. Okay. And that I think is what the benefit is to people. It's a learning environment. It's a trusted, safe learning environment where people are not going to be judged uh, for asking questions. And you know that's the whole point. Come and ask questions. You know. And and, and do they have to take any tests, Jack? No, I tried that. I tried that with my first course that I taught. One of the courses that I teach, and the very first one I taught was how to read and interpret a scientific study. I literally took people from the title to the abstract to introduction, materials and methods all the way through and said, this just a landscape. This is the landscape of the studies. Uh, and this is what you should expect to find. And it does have a section on ethics and research. And I gave them a, t a quiz every, every after, say, do three lectures. And I gave them a quiz after every three topics. They all got it right. So we're wasting our time, right? Ah, that's so, good. I yeah, can't say that that's true for all the material for all the courses, but you know, we 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 are considering bringing on some self-guided assessment. So, so Jack, I must be a lifelong learner. So here's my pathway. So I went, I went, and I got my bachelor's degree from Baylor, and double major, and then I go on to University of Texas. So that's four years. I go on to University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, and I get my MD. That's another four years. So then I do residency. That's three years where it's more kind of on-the-job training, very few tests. Then I went to University of Michigan uh, School of Public Health in graduate school, and I did a two-year um, MPH, but I condensed it down to about a year because I was such an efficient learner at that time. I could take I mean, many credit hours and, and get through it. Uh, then I did my fellowship. That's another three years. Uh, and and then I, I worked, you know, and I was an attending. I did all this stuff I did as an academic attending. Then I said, you know, I, I really missed out on graduate liberal arts studies. So then I went to SMU and I got, by that time, I got a certificate degree. So it's half of a master's degree just in liberal arts studies. And I studied contemporary economics and, and other um, it, just topics of interest to me. But I took tests because I wanted to get another degree for some reason. You know, I wanted to have something I could show for what I did. But I have to tell you, I think it's such a great idea. Uh, these courses uh, are terrific. People are taking them uh, worldwide and many of them are taking it for practical reasons. When I was chief of cardiology at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, uh, we had something at that university that was quite fun. It's called Mini Medical School. And it was actually a medical school for the public. So the okay. public would learn practical things about infections, antibiotics, what to watch for, what to ask. And they would come to the amphitheater at the medical school and we would teach Mini Medical School. So I think there's actually quite a need for just very practical things. Um, Absolutely, it helps them communicate with their doctor better if nothing yeah. else, right? And so, yeah. you know, one story I'm very proud of actually, I had uh, a student contact me, she was in the middle of my autoimmune class and I had just given a series of talks in just the right order that something clicked in her brain and she took her husband and went to her husband's doctor and said, hey, wait a minute, we need to test for mast cell disease first instead of going through this other part of the decision tree. Let's cut ahead to mast cell disease. Sure enough, they found out that he had mast cells. This man hadn't gone to date to, uh, to, to work two days in a row for the past 20 years. Mm. And he left his medicines at home and forgot them. And he 
he came home and he was just fine. So I can't take credit for that. The, that does a testimony to practical applications. The, the real proof of learning is that you can become conversant to it. You can ask pressing questions. No such thing as a stupid question. That's how. That's what science is for. Science is for asking questions, people. You know, we're supposed to ask questions. But, and, but I think uh, there is a value, Jack, for a structured environment. Uh, when I went back to SMU, um, you know, the tests weren't that laborious. A lot of it was it, it, because everyone was older. But you know what's important was the reading lists. So yeah. to be able to say, listen, we, we're going to read five books. So get them. And, uh, you, you know, I, maybe some people like me, I kind of need to get, get my butt kicked in a, in a structured environment. So uh, it sounds like that that's what you've offered. You certainly have uh, wonderful teachers. I know uh, Gerd Vandenbosch is really excited about doing it. He mentioned it online. I had to kind of dazzle him, Jack, when we were talking about uh, autoimmunity, you know, just because Vandenbosch was really just impressing Del Big Tree, I said, gosh, I'm really, you know, I'm really getting showed up here. So I had to toss up the major histocompatibility complex and just kind of kind of get uh, Big Tree's eyebrows going up. And uh, we had a great time. Uh, and um, it, it sounds terrific. Maybe in the future, if I can carve out some time, uh, you know, I'm trained as an epidemiologist. Obviously, I'm a clinician. Epidemiology is the study of the uh, determinants and distribution of disease. And so it's been, this has been the last few years has been a big time for epidemiologists. So, Absolutely. So yeah, the people in our autoimmune course uh, actually learned that part of our immunity to the things that our parents and grandparents were immune to is in fact inherited. And that's part of our beautiful immune system. And that different populations are going to have different susceptibility. Hmm. That sounds like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. knew something. Where did he, you suppose that he learned that different populations would have different susceptibilities? Hmm, maybe because we know something. You know, I gotta say, Dr. McAuliffe, anytime you wanna come and be a guest lecturer on almost any topic in any class, I'm sure we could find a space for you. You're just so hard to catch. You're so busy doing all the good work that you're doing. I, I know, and you know, the media has been a big role. And many of the people you have as faculty, they've, uh, like yourself, have played a prominent role in the media. And uh, the media continues to, to call on us. Uh, many feel, honestly, Jack, that they've lost trust in their healthcare uh, systems, their healthcare providers. Uh, and um, in many ways, this is probably a healthy turn for people to learn on their own, uh, to do yeah. their yeah. own research. I know for a fact that at least two of my students have started careers in formal learning, going to college because they took classes that they felt like they could do it after they took classes from us. So, you know, if, if you want to come and talk about epidemiology, we have a Hot Topics in Epidemiology Journal Club now taught by an epidemiologist, Kathy Stein. And uh, I'm really excited that uh, Rob Verkirk and four other faculty, I think it is, from the Alliance for Natural Health from the UK, have decided to plug right into the IPEC-EDU platform and they're bringing four courses. So the number one complaint that we always get is we have too many good courses. But uh, Greg Enriquez, he's a psychologist who has a theory of knowledge. He's very well known for the unified, uh, unified theory of knowledge. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> he's coming to teach psychology made as easy as one, two, three. And that's an interesting course because he's going back to the beginning of psychology and the, you know, the formal inquiry into the human mind. And he's going to interpret what they were saying in the context of what we now know. Mm. So you know, we don't answer to a curriculum board, so I can change the curriculum. I can add, you know, lectures to courses 
and we've had uh, that, that you did, typically wouldn't see. But we're not in competition with colleges and universities that do are credited. We're simply here doing mm-hmm. the good work of educating the public on how to analyze DNA sequences and protein sequences in a bio- bioinformatics class, for instance. It just doesn't doesn't stop. Yeah, it sounds, sounds terrific. Uh, Jack, now, uh, just to close out, yeah, give us some clear instructions on what people should do if they're interested in learning more. Right. Just dash on over to ipac-edu.org. <clears throat> ipac-edu.org. I-P-A-K. IPAC. That's right. edu.org You know, you'll see, go to the registration page and you'll, you'll be overwhelmed initially, but spend a little time and go shopping because... Each course has a full dis- course description, the full syllabus. If you click on the image for the course and go to the registration page, and uh, we have, if you, if you start a course and you don't like it, get a hold of us. We'll just let you shift over to another course or give you a full refund. We don't keep any of your registration fee, and the, the fees are one hundred and sixty or one hundred and eighty dollars for an entire course. So, and so- and Jack, how can uh, donors support you and support the efforts? That's really a great question because we're doing some really important work. Uh, IPEC EDU is going to launch an app for the phone that will allow parents to go into the doctors with the vaccine schedule from their children programmed into the app and actually say, okay, what's my next vaccines? You plug it in there and it will actually predict how long that child will be in whole body aluminum toxicity, how many months, what percentage of how many weeks, whatever. Um, and that is not a donation, but it is a gift. And I also want to men- go, go find out, you know, support the, the, uh, the, the aluminum app. But we also allow gift cards. You can buy a gift card and give the gift of knowledge to your loved ones, people that you think ought to know more, you, people that you want to take the course with you, but they don't want to pay for it. Um, now, if you want to support our research, you can go to ipaknowledge.org and you can sign up for a small monthly donation um, specifically right now, Peter, we have some remarkable results. We've collected all the vaccine schedules from, I think it's about 20 different countries or so. And we've compared the whole body aluminum toxicity over time. And so <clears throat> we know which country that we have the data for where the children up to the first two years of life um, have the least amount of whole body aluminum toxicity and which countries, it's actually some provinces in Canada, have the highest and they have far, far more aluminum in some of these provinces in Canada. And these are mm. uh, these are at-risk populations already. These are the native, native the, the original people, the original people, the first, the first nations, that are getting slammed by these policies of having these particular schedules. So if all the kids in Japan are not dying from these dread diseases with such low doses of aluminum then why do the kids in the United States and Canada have to have so much more? These are all interesting questions. We'll probably should have a whole separate show on aluminum. You know, it was a big deal, uh, certainly in the course of my career, with aluminum toxicity and and hemodialysis patients. But Jack Lyons-Weiler, we're going to have to leave it here on America Out Loud Talk Radio. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations.
Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Have you had COVID-19 recently or have suffered a vaccine injury syndrome? You know, all of these conditions are metabolic, catabolic strains on the body. The body has increased needs for essential micronutrients and minerals, and the GI tract may not be functioning completely normally in terms of absorption. The solution, Healthy Cell. Healthy Cell has an entire product line using microjoe technologies. So these are in liquid gel packs that you simply uh, rip open and a quick squirt and you've got everything you need in terms of nutrients. The product lines are the Immune Super Boost, the uh, Focus in Memory, and my favorite, the REM Sleep Supplement for an ideal night's sleep. Try them out. Go to HealthyCell.com and enter in out loud for a discount on your first purchase. Oh, or go on our platform, America Out Loud Talk Radio, and click on the banner bar, Healthy Cell, to get your discount on your first boxes of uh, Healthy Cell products. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Thanks so much for joining us right here on The Right View. Tonight, we are joined by cardiologist, epidemiologist, and the chief scientific officer of the wellness company, Dr. Peter McCullough. So what was it that you recommended treatment-wise back during COVID? Because I I mean, this was a time that, you know, was so unique that none of us had ever experienced something like this. People were rightly frightened. People really didn't know who to trust, what to trust. We were kind of all just living in in the moment and trying to keep ourselves safe and our families safe. What was it that that you kind of tried and what was the, the treatment plan that you kind of came up with? Well, I can tell you from the very beginning, we understood that it was a very complex infection. It wasn't a simple infection. 
And even for simple infections, I can tell you for a staph infection in the hospital, we always use two or more drugs. So I can tell you for a complex infection like SARS-CoV-2 that involved inflammation, a, a very unusual form of a pneumonia, and then blood clotting, I knew from the very beginning one drug was not going to do it. There was no silver bullet here, not at all. So what I had put together, I worked with a team of doctors largely in Italy early on because they were ahead of us in Milan as the first treatment protocol. That said, from the very beginning, uh, we need to stop start up top by reducing all the viral reinfection. People were in closed areas and they kept breathing in the virus over and over again, so they needed to get fresh air. We learned uh, fairly quickly that the virus would actually be killed in the nose and mouth with virucidal nasal sprays and washes. That was probably the biggest advance. It wasn't our first version of the protocol, but it definitely was uh, by the end of 2020. And so we found out that povidone iodine and colloidal silver, xylitol, a whole bunch of various agents were very effective in reducing mm -hmm. the amplification of the virus in the nose and mouth. And we would, you know, nasal washes and gargles became a standard. Uh, then there was a, a line of over-the-counter nutraceuticals and supplements that were helpful. They weren't curative, but they were helpful. Probably the biggest one was vitamin D. Every single study on vitamin D taken at higher doses had an effect. There was an over-the-counter antihistamine and acid called famotidine or pepsin. Turns out at, at, at four times the daily dose, that was effective. Everybody needed aspirin because there was uh, blood clotting involved. Uh, we learned very early on that that was important. And then the antivirals, they're the ones who got the most attention, uh, but we learned from other doctors, they were not necessary nor sufficient. So there's some protocols around the world that use no antivirals, but the first one we had available was hydroxychloroquine. Then we had ivermectin, and then Paxlovid, molnipiravir. Uh, we had monoclonal antibodies that became available to us in November of 2020. Uh, we added antibiotics to prevent uh, bacterial superinfection. There would be azithromycin and doxycycline. We knew there was inflammation, and corticosteroids played a huge role. So we used uh, common ones like uh, prednisolone or methylprednisolone, and then uh, inhaled budesonide. And then lastly, blood clotting was a factor. So in high-risk cases, we actually used full-strength anticoagulation. So that's called sequence multidrug therapy. It's intensive. Later on, became copyrighted as a McCullough protocol, but the principles became the most widely utilized principles worldwide. And uh, people have have credited uh, probably saving tens of millions of lives, saving hundreds of millions of hospitalizations. And we and we did the best we could on comparative data. By December of 2020, in a paper by Gukliakos and colleagues, I'm the senior author. We had clear and convincing evidence that early treatment was working. Wow. Well, it doesn't feel like uh, that the response you got to what what makes a lot of sense. I mean, to hear you kind of talk it talk me through it, and I'm not a doctor, uh, you know, but it seems to make sense. You, you hit a couple of key words in there, uh, Peter, that I think really upset a lot of people: hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. Once you start talking about those things, I mean, pr pretty much immediately, we're we're probably going to get this entire show censored. What the heck happened? How did we go from people trying to work, you know, a as a, a team to figure out this novel virus, something that really shut down the entire world, 
people like yourself who obviously were working overtime to figure out Mm -hmm. how to treat this in so many different ways. And it sounds like you had come up with quite a few really effective treatments of it. What happened? Well, hydroxychloroquine was only one of four to six drugs that we use. And I I used it widely. It's got some safety caveats, but doctors understand that. Uh, We use it for rheumatoid arthritis and for systemic lupus malaria prevention. So it's, it, 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 you know, it played a role. It turns out that there was over 300 studies in the end showing hydroxychloroquine's benefit was modest, about a 25% treatment benefit. But somehow it became a, a lightning rod, certainly with uh, a former President Trump. And other things happened around the world. You know, American media didn't carry this. But, you know, billionaire uh, Clive Palmer in Australia uh, had purchased a hydroxychloroquine uh, stockpile for the entire country of Australia. Wow. And he was going to just give it out and help people. Do you know the government authorities seized it and destroyed it? Oh, my gosh. Wow. I mean, that's terrible. But this is kind of terrifying stuff. You know, it's interesting because you, I remember, recommended a treatment plan during COVID. Uh, It seemed, again, very common sense based, especially for young people to monitor their symptoms and not to panic. That became a big issue, though, right? What was the problem with that? Oh, that's a good point. Uh, do you know in most of the the studies published on early treatment, only 25% of adults really need treatment because younger people who are thinner, healthy, they get through it fine. They don't need treatment. So even the biggest study showed there's only 25% of the high risk. And what we had observed is those were predictable. People in their 80s, 90s, uh, nursing homes, uh, congregate living, people with severe asthma, heart failure, cancer, you know, they were vulnerable they needed early treatment. Healthy people could just uh, breeze through it. So it was always you know, a risk-stratified approach. We didn't suggest everyone needed treatment. Uh, but it was important not to panic. And you know, there were reports early on in 2020, you know, the majority of para- paramedic runs that picked people up and took them to the hospital, the paramedics noted they weren't that sick. They didn't have to go on life support, what have you. Then people got in the hospital. People actually got sicker in the hospital. Right. And, and, you know, United States, we lead the world in COVID deaths. We're only, we're less than 5% of the world's population. Virtually all the deaths occurred in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? The, uh, I, I mean, I remember back, I had very young kids whenever the COVID outbreak happened. My daughter was six months old. My son was two and a half. And I was very conscious at the time that, I I knew after we had kind of figured out that this was, as you kind of just pointed out, a virus that really was dangerous for the elderly population and people with comorbidities. I didn't have any issue with that, nor did my husband, and obviously neither did my two children. And so I wanted my kids to be able to go out and, and kind of be in the world as they otherwise would have, because as a mom, I had this moment where I thought, gosh, my kids are not in a setting where they ordinarily would be in like a preschool setting or something. They're not able to be around other kids. They're not getting all of these exposures to different things like they otherwise would. And I was worried that if they weren't exposed to these things, that their immune systems would not develop properly and would not be as robust as they otherwise should have been. So I remember, uh, gosh, I would take my kids to like a playground and there you would have parents out there fully masked outside of the playground, um, their kids masked, 
swinging on some swings. And here I came with my kids without masks on because I didn't believe that my kids needed them. These parents snatching up their kids, taking them away. And uh, Dr. McCullough, I'll tell you what, uh, we now on the other side of this have seen that maybe that wasn't the best approach for kids to keep them sheltered and keep them away. Because I think on the other side of things now, have we not seen that it's been pretty bad for kids, not just socially, but also immune wise. There are probably a lot of kids out there who really weren't exposed to the things they otherwise should have been. It's true it, that the lockdowns were completely unnecessary for children. And, uh, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration was pu was published in October of 2020 by Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who's one of my frequent contributor group at Fox, but uh, and Sunitra Gupta from Oxford, Martin Kolda from Harvard. And it, it said this, that we understand the virus now, it's only gonna really impact uh, the, the elderly, the frail, and that everybody else should go about their business. It assumed we, we were all gonna get it, which we did. There's a paper by Claussen and colleagues from Harvard showing that 97% of us, you know, several months ago, have already had it now. So it's, it's already through the population. And that what happened with the children is uh, most of them had already had it early on. The CDC knew this. The CDC had the statistics. There were no major school outbreaks, none. There were no major cases where a child gave it to a teacher and a teacher had bad outcomes. In fact, the teachers had good outcomes because they had relatively robust immunity. Mm -hmm. And what happened is the children became developmentally delayed. They missed milestones. Uh, they've been behind in their learning. The children who are masks uh, have trouble with phonation because they can't, uh, you know, they're not seeing the facial expressions. Uh, so the whole um, program of locking down society as we look backwards now was a complete disaster. Multiple analyses have been published. Not a single one justifies the lockdown. Yeah, I mean, it's such a shame what we all went through. You personally, though, I feel like you were really attacked in a lot of ways during this entire process. You kind of became a bit of a controversial figure. Tell me about that and what that was like for you, because I assume as a doctor, look, you're out there trying to help people. You know, you're you're out there doing everything you can to try and figure this out, to save lives, to help treat people, to do the right thing. How, how did that happen? Like, what happened with all of that? Yeah, I can tell you, I'm one of the most published doctors in the history of our country. In my field, heart and kidney interactions, I am the most published. I'm one of the most published people in COVID-19, including the very first treatment approach. Uh, you know, I've given more media and commentary on the pandemic than any public figure, more than Fauci, more than Walensky. Do, do, do you know that um, I've never been confronted by anybody of my stature, not a chief of medicine or a dean or a division chief, and whoever disagreed with me. I've never been attacked by another doctor who disagrees with me. So so this idea of becoming controversial, it's kind of like in whose eyes uh, yeah. we realized that there was just a lot of censorship on social media. You know, I was kicked off Twitter for about two months uh, at the end of last year. And, you know, during that time, someone made a hashtag Dr. McCullough. I was trending number one in the world, just ahead of the World Cup most wow. days. So there was a, they had a vote. They said, should we let Dr. McCullough on? It was 98 to two to let me back on. So, you know, I'm back on Twitter. I have probably the do top doctor account of doctors who see patients. People, you know, rely on my judgment. I've been very careful. 
Uh, I've correctly uh, actually predicted all the twists and turns of the pandemic. I always cite the information like I did today in this interview. If you ever notice, most doctors come on, certainly Fauci, Walensky, they couldn't cite any of the papers. I was pinpoint, I want Laura Ingram and dozens and dozens of times, Tucker Carlson, I've been on Newsmax, I've been on ABC. I always cite the information and I'm disciplined and, and that's how I ended up where I am now. Wow. Well, good for you. You know, that it's it's so nice to hear that it hasn't impacted you because it's hard, um, obviously, to be kicked off Twitter. Why were you kicked off of Twitter? What was the rationale for that? Violating the terms of community rules. There was never any justification for mm. it. And um, you know, I'm back on and, uh, it, it, you know, I provide uh, helpful updates. I, I've branched out in the media like you. I have a, a top medical podcast called McCullough Report on America Out Loud talk radio. I've got a Substack, Courageous Discourse, which I started during my Twitter ban, became very, uh, you know, very widely read. Uh, I published a book, Courage to Face COVID-19, with uh, best-selling author John Leake about the early years. Uh, you know, Peter Navarro had reached out to me from the White House very early on to help him with uh, trying to unlock hydroxychloroquine out of this, this box that I got put in with the unnecessary emergency use authorization. And then Senator Johnson uh, and others, I was the lead witness in the U.S. Senate on November 19th, 2020, and then organized and, and co-moderated two major sessions later on. We made great progress. Uh, the, the great, I think the great regret is uh, our pandemic response was not egalitarian. It, it was simply became a, became a dictatorship uh, by one person. And uh, we needed teams of doctors in Washington. We needed teams of doctors who were treating patients that understood the illness, and we needed frequent updates. We could have been through this. And I've testified now under oath, I think we could have saved two thirds of 1.2 million lives lost, and we could have avoided two thirds of 6 million hospitalizations. That's really the, wow. the toll that was taken. Wow, what a shame. And you know, I, I assume that in medicine, you know, more opinions are better. You want to hear what, you know, people, other protocols are and how you uh, approach different things from different ways. And, and that's how you kind of come sure. to a conclusion, right, as to what would work better. So I assume you're you're referencing maybe Dr. Fauci when you say the, the one person the that was kind of in charge of it all. Right. You never saw him say, well, listen, I'm not sure. Let me get a team in here and we're going to review mm -hmm. Uh, early treatment protocols, or we're going to review what's the best monoclonal antibody strategy. We, you know, in the field, it was terrible. We were trying to get uh, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or bamalivimab or sotorivimab, and we were just struggling. You know, it seemed like every drug that we needed to save lives, it was, it was hard to get. Uh, uh, we weren't getting any support out there. What we really needed is we needed full-throated support that said, listen, we're going to let the doctors do everything they can to save Americans. And the government get out of it. If the government was not in the business of pandemic response, if they did nothing, it would have been so much better because we just would have used our medical instincts and saved lives. Instead, the government stepped in and said, nope, can't do this, can't do that. Uh, before we know it, there were government uh, protocols for the hospital. The hospitals weren't deviating from them. They were very nihilistic and American lives were lost. Yeah. And you know, the, the sad thing is too, uh, obviously, having never dealt with something like this in our country's history, I think that, you know, when you look back at my father-in-law, who was the, the president when COVID happened, you know, this is, he's not a doctor, he's not a medical expert. So he had no choice but to rely on the guidance and advice of those 
who he was given. And of, of course, one of those people being Dr. Fauci. And now all of the things, Dr. McCullough, that we see that could have been done, as you just said, differently. And it almost feels like they led him down a path where they lied to him, where they didn't tell him the full truth, where they were, uh, for whatever reason, just only presenting one option for things. I, I think you're right. I think it is such a shame to look back on that and see how it all happened. I will say, I'll give my father-in-law a lot of credit. No other president could have mobilized the private sector in the way he did, gotten all the ventilators made uh, it, you know, in such a, uh, a historic way. We've never seen something like, like that happen. So for all that um, went wrong with that, it is kind of great to know that we did have a president who was willing to do everything possible and he really did to try and and save lives. Um, I want to ask you about post COVID because you're right. I think most people have had it. You would know. He said like 97% of us have had it. I got COVID almost two years ago for the first and only time that I know of. And the worst part of it for me was losing my smell and my taste. I lost that for almost a month. And there's that that is such an upsetting situation. It's still Dr. McCullough has not fully come back for me. Will do you think will ever those of us who have experienced this will I ever get my full smell and taste back? Is this kind of my new normal now? Is there anything we know about this? What can you tell me? I think you will. I bet you didn't use the virucidal nasal washes and sprays. I didn't even know about that till you just told me. That's my. I mean, uh, Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace came out in 2021. She had a big piece in Epoch Times. She said, why is our government not telling us about this simple, inexpensive approach that can cut down on the viral damage and spread up there? Turns out that just dilute povidone iodine or dilute uh, hydrogen peroxide, or there's now commercial products, Cofix RX, Clear, and others. They work great. And uh, they cut down the amount of viral replication, which literally can damage the olfactory nerve. She was so frustrated. By the way, the masks didn't work, but the sprays oh. and gargles did. Sprays and wow. gargles turned the, the PCR test negative in three days. So we could have cut down spread massively if everybody would have been using them. And they were using them widely in Bangladesh and other countries. That's where a lot of the research was done. So uh, it was a giant shortcoming. What we know now is HHS in 2022 has, has put out basically a spend of about a billion dollars for long COVID uh, syndromes. Nothing has come out of it. Nothing. It's been a giant waste of time. What wow. we've done is we've looked at it. A recent uh, a paper uh, from Harvard that's very important shows that people like you, you probably have circulating spike protein from the virus in your bloodstream. People who have residual symptoms still have a, a fragment of the virus, the, the surface spicule that's circulatory in the bloodstream. And, uh, and this is uh, very important. The first author is Swank and colleagues. And uh, we now know that there are at least two natural substances that help digest the spike protein. The spike protein was engineered in the Chinese biosecurity lab in Wuhan, China. It's, it's artificial protein. That's the reason why we can't break it down. So the natural enzymes that break it down, one is natokinase. The Japanese discovered that. It's a, it's, it's a fermentation product of soy by a, a bacteria called Bacillus uh, subtilis natto. And the other is a family of enzymes that's derived from the stems of pineapples called bromelain. 
So both natokinase and bromate, which are available as oral supplements, you can buy them at uh, nutraceutical stores or online, they break down the spike protein. They're also mild blood thinners. And so the spike protein is promoting blood clotting. These are uh, helping attenuate that. And then there's a, a final natural substance called curcumin. It's derived from turmeric. It actually seems to buffet some of the effects of the spike protein. Uh, and, you know, I, I've been working on this for two and a half years. I have a major publication that's been fully accepted on using this approach now. Um, I've tried all the prescription drugs and very few work for these generic long COVID syndrome like you have. This kind of taste and smell is probably your only manifestation. Mm -hmm. And so this what we call triple base detox, that is the base of our detoxification of the spike protein is natokinase, 2,000 units twice a day. That's equivalent of 100 milligrams twice a day. Bromelain, 500 milligrams once a day. And then curcumin, 500 milligrams twice a day. We're having our patients do this for about three months. On the short side, you would probably only take about three months. Uh, other people more severely affected 12 months. I can't make any therapeutic claims because we don't have the large randomized trials. We only have randomized trials so far in curcumin. But my clinical observations are telling me that people improve. They get their sense of taste and smell back. They, they have numbness and tingling. It goes away. Uh, we have improvement with uh, problems with blood clots, heart damage, et cetera. So believe it or not, an unnatural protein and the clinical response is three natural products. Well, I love that approach. I'm all about the natural route, uh, Dr. McCullough. That's, that's how I like to operate. So you, what you just said sounds great. If I want to go look up, you know, what you just said, or, or maybe the audience does, is there somewhere we could go to find this? Right now, the best-in-class product that has the, the data online is the wellness company has Spike Support, which is natokinase plus some minor products. Uh, my paper will be appearing shortly in the journal, the Association of uh, American Physicians and Surgeons, and then I'm going to have a parallel paper in preprint and some executive summaries. It'll be a major paper, just like the first McCullough Protocol paper was in the American Journal of Medicine. That was the most frequently downloaded and read paper in wow. all of COVID-19 during the early phase. And I think the detoxification paper will also be, uh, you know, will be a major headliner. Americans, first off, wanted to know, well, how do they treat COVID to stay out of the hospital and stay alive? I provided that. Now they want to know how they can get out of these persistent symptoms that I've tried to deliver there as well. You know, and I've, I've been out there trying to help as many people as possible. The frustrated Senator Ron Johnson and Roger Marshall, uh, Rand Paul and others have. The sad thing is we haven't had our public health agencies. No one's come forward from the CDC and said, here's something practical you can do to get over this or from the FDA or from any of the government agencies. They really have not been helpful to Americans. Mm. What do you make of that? Why, why would that be? You, you know, it's just uh, in, in many ways, it, it's it's just been a giant disappointment. Our public health agencies have have really dropped the ball uh, altogether. And, and we don't know if it if it was the fact that they dispersed and they were trying to work by Zoom or they were gripped by fear. Uh, but uh, Rochelle Lewinsky, we, we've actually gone through two CDC directors. So we've had Re uh, Redfield out, now Walensky out. Walensky came out and said, we made large mistakes. We're going to need to overhaul the agency. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, we've been, we have two FDA, three FDA commissioners. We have Scott Gottlieb. He went to Pfizer. So he's now, uh, you know, obviously very biased towards vaccines. Then we had Stephen Hahn. He's gone to the venture capital firm for Moderna. So mm. he's kind of tipping his hat there. Now we have Robert Kale, who's one of my associates, but we haven't had any strong leadership. We haven't had any government 
public health officials come out and say, America, this is what you should do for us to get past this. We have not had that. Uh, I've tried to provide it as best I can from the clinical the clinical community. Well, I'm going to vote that when Donald Trump becomes the 47th president, which I believe will happen, I'm voting Dr. Peter McCullough in there. We need you to do something to fix this. I mean, the truth is, you know, people really lost so much trust. You're right in the FDA, in the CDC throughout COVID. All the information it felt like we were getting wasn't working. People obviously knew the masking was just a bunch of garbage. It was just worthless and pointless. And yet every time you went into a public space, every time you got on an airplane, people were on top of you to get your mask on, make sure you wear it right. Oh, you could pull it down to take a sip of your water, but you better put it back on. None of it made any sense. And I think people were like, this is crazy. How do we trust these agencies? I'm going to throw your name out there, uh, Dr. McCullough, as yeah, my choice, because I tell you what, you make a lot of sense. Um, I could I, I have like a million questions I could ask you all day. The last thing I want to ask you, um, what is it? Is there anything right now that you feel people should be aware of? Anything that concerns you that you're looking at? I think we're at the point where we've you know, we're at the closure of the vaccine era. You know, there've been many calls to just go ahead and retire the vaccines. They, they haven't been able to keep up with the variants. Um, you know, if someone's following the government protocol on vaccines, they're on their seventh shot. I don't know anybody who's taken seven shots. There's been no public figure who said they've taken seven shots. And so I think there's there's basically been a loss of confidence there, mm-hmm. and uh, and certainly great concern for those who have had complications. Uh, uh, former President Trump has consistently said he would never mandate them; he never would have. And I think if there were no mandates on the vaccines, we wouldn't have so much consternation over them. Uh, but at this point in time, I think people want to want to move on. They don't want to have any mandates. If any, I think there's about 93 colleges that are still mandating them. Uh, wow. They're unwanted. You know, most of the government agencies have dropped it. Finally, the military has dropped it. But I think we just need to drop all the mandates, uh, just kind of retire this era in medicine that we'll need to do an evaluation on on how to do better next time. Where can people find you? Uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, we appreciate it. Where can people find you if they want to follow everything you're doing? Because you got a lot going on. Thanks. Well, my website is a central area to get to all the buttons, PeterMcCulloughMD.com. My podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report, is 2 p.m. Eastern on America Out Loud Talk Radio, Saturday and Sunday. Then it's on the Apple iHeart um, iPod uh, podcast network. My Substack is Courageous Discourse. It comes out every day on the Substack application. I started a foundation, McCullough Foundation, uh, 501c3. Uh, I'm involved in about 100 cases as an expert, pro bono. So I need the support to do that uh, for military. People have been wronged through the pandemic. uh, And that's McCulloughFND.org. 